Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Join Brooklyn-based contemporary ballet company Converge Dance for their performances of Quento on August 26th and 27th at 7.30 p.m. at Triskelion Arts in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Featuring three new works choreographed by each of the artistic directors, Amy Saunder, Jordan Miller, and Tiffany Magalabnon, Quento, also the Tagalog word for story, tells stories of love, friendship, loss, and reunion through dance, live and original music, costume design, and film projection. Visit www.convergedance.com for ticket information and more. Special thanks to the Town of Vail for their support of the Vail Dance Festival and Conversations on Dance live podcast recordings. This episode was recorded live at the Manor Vail Lodge. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Michael Sean Breeden. I am one of the hosts of the podcast Conversations on Dance. Um, I've been out of the festival doing these talks almost every morning, and it's so great to see so many familiar faces. I do have to start today with a little bit of bad news. Unfortunately, Caroline Shaw could not join us. She was double booked. But we have two incredible guests with us that I'm sure you'll be more than happy to see. Uh, Justin Beck, choreographer, and Johnny Gandleton, a violinist with Brooklyn Rider. Thank you for coming out today. So Johnny, we've never had you on, so we've got to hear a little bit about your your history, your origin story. Um, you have a really rich family history in uh, classical music. You know, your family is all, you've got a lot of artists in there. So what was that like growing up, sort of encompassed by the classical music world? Um, it was uh, it was sort of single minded, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I come, I was born in Russia, and uh, into a family of uh, musicians. Uh, my Parents both uh, professional musicians. My dad is a, a violist and a teacher, and uh, my mom is a pianist. My older sister is a violinist. Um, so, uh, and I started playing when I was five years old, and uh, I, I imagine very similar to what it's like to be a, um, a student of dance in Russia. It was, you know, this is what we're doing. We're not doing anything else <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, and 
yeah, I mean, I mean, I didn't know, any, you know, I didn't know anything else. So um, until uh, I was 12 and then my family moved to Israel uh, and um, I continued my studies there. And, and uh, um, that was the first time I started sort of performing a little bit, participating in um, small size competitions and, and still it was very, you know, very single-minded focus of, um, solo, uh, career, like mm -hmm. career as a soloist. Um, and then I moved to the U S to go to school in Philadelphia and all of that kind of went at, at the door, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 17 year old living on my own for the first time. Um, and just being exposed to, you know, new friends and then um, playing in an orchestra, playing chamber music and, and playing with other people, you know, it was sort of like, oh, this is actually, this actually could be fun. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Before that, it was not that much fun. Uh -huh. So so what sort of um, professional career path were you looking at when you say like you'd moved to America and you started, doors started opening? And oh, I, I really had no idea about the, um, uh, the, the professional track i just mm -hmm. knew that the thing i was doing before uh was probably not for me um and i, I guess like the thing that I, I i struggled with for for many years was that i never made the choice to to be a, a musician mm -hmm. you know or or i i didn't make it until much later like way past school even after i was already kind of that's what i was doing but i still like is this really what i want to do i had i never really I was not one of those people who were driven to be like, I really want to do this. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was given to me and I was, I continued on the path for a long time. So, um, yeah, what, I don't know. What was it that made it click then for you? Like when did you have, did you have an aha moment or kind of just snuck in there where you were like, Oh, this is what I want to do. Not really. I mean, I, I, you know, I went to a very small school in the U S that was also very, um, you know, it, it's, uh, I mean, they, they had chamber music and orchestra, but it was also very single minded in terms of, um, sort of tradition and, and ways to do things. Mm -hmm. Um, when I moved, when I f finished my studies there, I moved to New York and, um, I stopped playing the violin for, for a few years. Um, wow. I worked in the wine shop. So, <laughs> <laughs> if you need a recommendation on a Southern, Southern French wine, I could probably pull one out. But, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, so I really, I, I moved to New York and I, I, I had a clear idea of the things that I really didn't want to do. Right. But I was kind of like just, you know, um, uh, kind of surfing around and trying to figure out what were the things that, that, that were exciting. And, and um, one of the things was um, I, I fell into playing with a, a world music collective called Silk Road Ensemble. Um, uh, and that was in 2002. I was filling in for... The other violinist in Brooklyn writer, Colin Jacobson, who has been a friend for many years, and Nick Quartz, who plays viola in Brooklyn Rider, is also was also playing in Silk Road, and so that was a, an experience. It was a two week, really intense experience of of uh, amazing, like mind blowing, um, um, you know, music making and just being exposed to cultures that I didn't know anything about, musical cultures, and and being in it was kind of like a, a really cool, um, um, like a science experiment workshop mm -hmm. and just trying to figure out how does this work. And, and, um, so that was awesome. And then 
Brooklyn Rider was formed a few years later. Yeah. And then that's sort of around 2005, 2006 is when we're like, okay, we can actually um, kind of forge our own path and, right. and, and shape our own future a little bit. Right. You know? I, I really want to delve into that for sure. But let's hear <laughs> yes. uh, a little bit Let about Justin. No, <laughs> it's great. We love a chatty guest. That's what we want. Yeah. Um, Justin, I probably asked you now on this podcast like a half dozen times, <laughs> like, tell me how you got started in dance. So I wonder if we couldn't like reframe that question a little bit and hear, uh, particularly like through the lens of music, like how did music inform your choices to become both dancer and then later choreographer? Oh, yeah. I mean... To me, music is the reason why we move. Um, you can see that. I can see that in, you know, I have a 16-month-old daughter and you can you put on music and she moves. And that's not something we necessarily taught her. It's something that is deep inside of us. And I've always felt that. And um, I think as a young person... Uh, my family would take me to see a lot of theater uh, as a kid and at an age where I was so young that I usually I couldn't stay awake for the second act. I would <laughs> fall. I would see the first act and after the intermission, I would fall asleep. Um, but I do remember seeing a show called Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk when I was like nine. And that uh, was created by... Uh, George C. Wolf and Savion Glover. And it's this incredible uh, tap dance musical that goes through the, the, um, the history of tap dance and the black experience in, uh, in America. And I didn't understand the gravity of all that as a nine-year-old, but I was able to feel something from seeing this performance and and I think particularly like the the musicianship of uh, the tap dance form that it's it's a it's dance, but it's also uh, an, an instrument, right? So um, any movement is heard aloud. So um, so those, all those rhythms are created by the body, and so I think that really was that initial spark for me as. Uh, someone who responds to music and who responds to dance. And, um, and I just became really curious about that as a young person and started to, I just wanted to learn more about it and study the form. And that kind of like opened up to other forms. Uh, and eventually I found ballet sort of last. <laughs> that was kind of like the last step on this like trail of discovering um, certain movements that were, available to me um in the you know i grew up in san diego so it's a, it's not a big dance town or dance community so it was a little bit limited in what was available to me and i just felt like eventually i had to come to new york to learn more so mm -hmm. that's yeah i guess that's my way of um of discovering dance from like a musical point of view right so let's let's circle back to johnny and hear a little bit more about the creation of brooklyn writer it sounds like I want to know what the kind of the founding principles are. It seems like you needed something that wasn't going to be so, um, you know, traditional or um, straightforward in the, that kind of path. So what 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 brought you guys together to make this quartet? Uh, well, we um, we knew each other from school um, and 
we had a lot of experiences playing together before we formed a quartet. So um, Silk Road Ensemble was one. Uh, and um, uh, we played in the kind of a, a DIY orchestra that was formed my, my first year in school called Wild Ginger Philharmonic, um, which was pretty awesome and, and uh, kind of... Um, kind of radical in, in many ways um in terms of music making and just uh what was happening and 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 um that left a huge imprint on on our our just experience of what we l were looking for you know like how open one could be about um trying new things and and what we were yeah just goals you know it was like right. it was like a a huge door was open into the possibilities of making music. And then um, Colin and Eric Jacobson, who are brothers, and Eric was the original cellist and Brooklyn writer, formed their own orchestra called The Knights, uh, and we all played in that. So we spent uh, we spent so much time together, um, and we played in all sorts of um, uh, different functions. You know, we played in museums and, and bars, and, and we were just kind of like out there doing stuff. And then... You know, we looked around and like, do we want to take this relationship, you know, further? <laughs> Next step, you know, <laughs> and it's a commitment for sure. Mm -hmm. And and we did. And and I guess one thing that we um, chose to do from the very beginning was was not to um, let's see, not to limit our ourselves into uh, we are the group that does you know, only new music or mm -hmm. we are the group that does only um, collaborations or like we just wanted to follow the things that were really interesting to us and we within the quartet had a variety of interests. Mm -hmm. So we ended up being a group that does all sorts of things. You know, we, we play a lot of classical, you know, traditional classical repertoire. We commission a lot of new music. Um, collaboration with musicians from both from classical world, but also a lot from the outside of classical world is, is a huge part of what we do. And it feels like a good place to be um, because it's just a great, you know, the, being on that edge of, of collaborating and, and um, not knowing what you're kind of getting into mm -hmm. uh pushes you forward and gets you into sometimes uncomfortable uh places but then at the end you end up learning a lot mm. um and actually i mean that's sort of why uh, being here you know for many years is also um we love we love being here we love coming back because um it's <laughs> it's collaboration is like the name of the game here right, you know, right? um it's never like okay you just do that and that's done you know, particularly when we're creating new works. Uh, I love, you know, watching uh, Justin work with Caroline, you know, um, and just shape. Um, it's not about the music or the movement. It's about the kind of the whole thing. And then and then things just adjust constantly. Um, and I love that. I think, Justin, you have a similarly broad um, interest in music. Like, I mean... You'll choreograph to, uh, you know, Partita, which we saw a couple of days ago, is a cappella. But then you'll do something that's strictly classical, and then you'll do something that's like electronic pop music. And so, it, I'm curious, how do you personally define what makes danceable music? And is is there are there any limits? Is there something you wouldn't make work to? Yeah, it's a very personal thing. I think it's like the the. Uh... 
I would say advice to any aspiring choreographers, like the most important thing is to find music that speaks to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has to come from deep within uh, the, the interest and the, the inspiration. Um, if you're, you know, that is if you're a musically driven choreographer. And, right. and I think like for me, it's definitely not limited to any sort of genre or, um, I mean, I was just looking at, we're going to do a, a stage uh, premiere of a piece that I made for film for Anthony Huxley, which is set to the Barbara Adagio for strings, mm-hmm. which is like just this super classical, like iconic, almost like cliche piece of music, but it's just so wonderful and mm-hmm. worth hearing. And then going from that to like this new piece that we're creating here for Vale, which is a collaboration with the mandolin player, Chris Thiele. And it's all songs that he, he wrote and he's singing in that. So it's just like, it's a, it's a broad range. And um, yeah, I think like that new piece is something similarly like to what Johnny was saying. It's like that can feels like very um, uh, customized towards this festival and like the energy and the, uh, the, um, kind of like creativity that and collaboration that runs through uh, what goes on here. Right. So, um, yeah. Do you, do you have like a running list of music that you'd like to get to eventually? I do. I mean, I, I keep a, a kind of like catalog of pieces that I eventually would like to choreograph. And then sometimes I'll listen to something in like for just like six months and I'll, I'll choreograph it or sometimes it'll be, much longer like the partita caroline's partita i listened to for like a decade before choreographing and finally it's such a dense complex piece that it's like i had to like work up the confidence and the understanding of what it was before i could approach it and it also has to do with like the planets aligning and feeling like the right place at the right time with the right dancers and the right right company and the right moment to uh, present it to an audience and so it's a lot of it's a very like complicated um, galaxy to figure out uh, when to create and present a new piece to, to the world I guess yeah, for sure uh, Johnny I'm curious to hear a little bit about um, your first experience playing for dance yeah when did that happen sure uh, well um, it was uh, it was life-changing for many reasons Um I got a call um, maybe in 2003 from a guy named Ethan Iverson, who was a great uh, jazz pianist um, and um, was at the time the music director for Mark Morris Dance Group. I didn't know Ethan, and when I heard the name Ethan Iverson, I thought, oh, is he related to my favorite basketball player, Alan Iverson? <laughs> <laughs> Turns out he really wasn't. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, Ethan asked me to play for Mark Morris, and, and um, at the time I, I couldn't do it, but then a year later I was um, uh, hired as a kind of the member of the Mark Morris music dance group, music ensemble, and... Um, and it was for a specific uh, piece. Uh, Mark was doing uh, Bartok Four, Fourth String Quartet. Um, All Fours was the name of the piece, and that was an incredible experience because um, th- that's a ve- that's a very complicated piece of music. Um, 
the the quartet rehearsed uh, a lot to 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 um, to learn it to be able to play it, and and then um, when we came to rehearsal, uh, first rehearsal, what was incredible to me was just how much better the dancers knew the piece than we did. Like, and that's just uh, that's often the case. Um, uh, in working with dancers, just how deeply they know the music in 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 different ways than than uh, than musicians kind of learn things, you know, the counts and 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 it's it's embodying the counts and and just uh, it's amazing. And if and if 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 one thing, uh, you know, if we mess up one one count is everybody know you know it's like oh my god this is crazy <laughs> you guys all know um because that's you know that's usually i mean that's often not the case when you're just performing a piece of music and an audience is listening right. if they miss a count you know some people will know but many people will not but right. but an entire group of dancers who you're working for are like well, what happened there <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and anyway i played for for mark um in the group for we played that piece maybe seventy times that wow. year and um, um and it was just an incredible also just I, I love the just the approach to to the work, you know, like the the daily class and then the the amount of focus and, and dedication that goes into every day of being a a dancer in a dance company. Mm-hmm. It was something that um it's different than 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 a lot of things that we do. I mean, you know, um, like an, a very typical orchestral concert, orchestral program will have two rehearsals and a dress, right. and then you go and you play, and that's just not possible uh, in the dance world. Right. And um, and I think there's something to that 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 classical music could take and and maybe improve upon. You know, because. There's no way to to get to know a piece of music the way that dancers know it on two rehearsals in a dress. Right. There's just no way to do that. And that's partly why we 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 love playing in a string quartet. Right. Because we get to spend as much time as we feel each piece and each project needs and and we get to do pieces over and over again and continue the process of improving and learning and, and just so it doesn't feel like a like a static thing that you're just here, here, here is the Beethoven quartet. This is it, you know, right. like it's always evolving. Uh, and same with new works. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And since then we've worked with many, many, many different, uh, choreographers and, and companies. And it's always fascinating. Are there ways that, um, playing for dance differs other than just the obvious of like dancers can only do it at this tempo. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, do you approach things differently? Or is it just primarily like a tempo issue? Well, the tempo is, you know, I mean, it's kind of like a running joke with us. You know, it's like it's either too slow or too fast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then when it's sometimes, Always. you know, like that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, but it is, you know, um, it does feel different. And, and I love, uh, you know, it's not it's not often the case that we we are able to just watch the dancers while we're playing uh, at all times, but when we, but we, when we're able to, it does feel very different mm-hmm. because we, the phrasing that we do, uh, we can shape it uh, with the the movement and the motion of the dancers, and and it feels um, it feels fluid and 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 feels very like you know in the moment. Right. So you we really like 
creating something together in the moment. It's not a, again, it's not like a fixed thing that you're just like, here it is, go. Right, you know? right, right. Uh, There's a moment at the end of Bloom, this duet that I collaborated on with Caroline, Sean, actually Tyler Peck and Armand Cornejo are dancing it, I think tonight. Um, and the, the first uh, section, the duet ends with this kind of like swirl into kind of like a flourish by them. And I can feel the musicians kind of lean in and watch for that moment. And then everyone kind of finishes this off together. And that's a really cool thing to feel is that everyone's in on it together. And there's a nice also gesture if you're going to come to the performance tonight where the, you know, it, it begins with the musicians uh, playing this music and the two dancers enter and they run up stage and they, um, they stand with the musicians and they form, they actually form a choreographic circle with the four of the, the four, uh, the, the quartet. Mm -hmm. And, and it's a, it's kind of ceremonious and it's like sort of a moment to acknowledge one another. And then it, uh, continues and embarks upon this whole kind of music and dance, uh, mm -hmm. interaction. So, um, yeah, we had a great talk last year about that ballet bloom, um, with Caroline. And, um, it was so fascinating to me because you were, kind of dissecting or, um, you know, you were both interpreting masters that you have long um, admired, Balanchine and Tchaikovsky. And I know you have great reverence for, you know, the geniuses of classical music, but we are, through you guys, we see it through like a 21st century lens. So maybe we could talk a little bit about how we, how you take that um, admiration and um, respect for the past, but make it into something that is new? Damn, that's a big question. <laughs> I'm going to be here for a while talking about that. Um, yeah, well, that's a, the Tchaikovsky Padada. That's like, it's a, it's a classic. Mm -hmm. It's like one of the, um, the major works that's always in the repertoire at New York City Ballet. It's always being performed here you can see it's here every summer. They, I feel like they do it every summer here. Mm -hmm. And I think Balanchine uh, was in his own way in uh, responding to the classical grand pas de form with that work. Mm -hmm. So um, he, through his own process, was updating uh, what that form was within this dance. And you can see that, like when you compare that ballet to uh like sleeping beauty parada or grand pas classique there's a kind of uh difference in the musicality and there's uh, it's a little bit more um sophisticated musically in terms of what balanchine's doing with the music um the movement has little quirks to it um there he he sort of inserts his own individualized voice uh to be in conversation with very classical steps and so the thought of doing that parada was to kind of follow his lead and do what he did with his original tchaikovsky parada but like um in our own way uh in the 21st century and and try and be like in conversation with these artists who we can't actually be in conversation mm -hmm. with because they're no longer in this world with us um, so it was, it was like an exploration for us as artists. And I think like one thing I would say about it is there's a sl slightly greater density in steps and movement that runs through bloom. 
compared to Tchaikovsky Parada or compared to even further back, like the um, the classic the kind of classical Parada form. And I think that has to do with like how our eye as, as an audience members takes in information nowadays or even like when you uh, I've talked about this in, before, like when you watch a TV commercial from like the 80s or the 90s, it's like a different pacing than when you watch a TV commercial from like <laughs> 2022. It's mm-hmm. like and same goes for um, for certain works for film and stuff like that. And so I do think that there's there's like a, um, a changing of pace with um, delivering the movement. And, and that also has to do with the fact that dancers today are just like so incredible and they're um they can do things that weren't possible like a hundred years ago so yeah Mm -hmm. johnny how about you when when you're approaching bach you know that's been done you know over and over and over and it it seems like you are kind of like a a maverick like you want to you want to do something a little bit different like how, how what's your approach there how do you respect that but do it in your own voice um, well, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I think, uh, actually I think our, our work with the quartet was, was, uh, um, living composers, um, informs a lot of what we do with, um, works of composers who are no longer around. Um, because, um, when you're working with a living composer, you quickly find out that that um, in in conversation you find out that no matter um, how much information a composer puts into the score, um, there's no way to to describe exactly what the composer is looking for, right? Like there's just <laughs> there's not enough tools. Uh, you can write, you know, um, directions. You can be very specific with notation, and yet there's a whole like hundred percent more that's just in the composer's mind. And you kind of find that out through the process of working on the piece, through conversation with the composer, through performing it, through um, seeing how the audience responds. And then it's all kind of, you know, it, it shifts a lot. So, and then when you go back to a score, you know, of a, a Beethoven quartet, you know, which has, a lot of direction, but, but also, you know, it's, there's a hundred percent that's, that you have to kind of find for yourself mm-hmm. the, the meaning of it. Um, and so, um, we try, um, we try to approach, we, our, our process is we try to approach new works as if they've existed forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we try to approach old works like they were written yesterday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's cool. cool. I yeah. love that. I I feel like um, I remember in the score for Bloom that Caroline writes sometimes very detailed uh, notes for how to play certain things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she, Caroline is uh, not a lot of composers do this. It's very sweet. Like she'll write a note, you know, that says like chocolate lava cake. <laughs> <laughs> that is very specific. Yeah, <laughs> or you know, I have um, uh, there's a there's a part. Um, uh, in in bloom, where um, there's this beautiful kind of like chorale that that the lower strings are playing, you know, and then 
uh, my part comes in, and it's just like a pulse uh, on one note. You know, I just repeat this one note for for a few bars, and she writes, "Humor is implied," (laughs) 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 which is great. You know, I I love that. I love that overlap because it's like (laughs) when Justin's in the room creating, he'll use imagery like that all the time, and. Um, you know, it's like, this is like writing in cursive or, yeah. you know, things like that. And you don't think of that with music because, you know, you, you have the sheet in front of you. But, uh, you know, I've never heard about that being written into the score. Yeah. But I mean, that's, you know, um, engaging um, a person's imagination in that way is just so great because right. it just makes it. Um, I think specificity is is really great and really useful. Um, and I also like even when we're talking about tempo, you know, like. There are certain uh, situations when we perform with dancers where it, the conversation is just, this was too fast or this was too slow, which is fine. And we will adjust, you know, as, as much as we are able to. Um, but I love in, in our conference, like, what, what did you say yesterday about uh, Herman? You, you said, like, he has, like, 10 yeah, like you gave us a very specific right. reason why we we had to adjust the tempo. It was um, two, the first movement we were working on this this other dance called Rise, Wait, Climb Through, which was created for the festival in, uh, a few years ago. And the first movement was a little too slow; it was dragging. And I was just saying, like you know, there's one part where Armon does a uh, pirouette, and for those of you who know Armand, he can really turn. But I was like, you know, he kind of maxes out at like 10 or 11 pirouettes and then he can't do any more. So it has to be a little faster. Right. So that's a very specific reason why we should pick up the tempo, you know? And that's great because otherwise, you know, it's like, well, it needs to be a little faster. We don't know why, you know? Uh, is it just the altitude, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you bring up uh, Rise, Weight Climb Through, which premiered, I think, four years ago. I'd love to hear a little bit about for each of you, what it means to return to work that you've already done. So for you as a choreographer, um, are you going to make any tweaks to it? Or like, how, how do you respond to this years later? For you returning to a piece of music, I think as a musician, it's really interesting to me because ballet bodies like depreciate over time, right? You, you literally can't perform something 20 years down the line the way you could have before. Mm-hmm. So you have to shift. But a musician, I guess, theoretically, you could just do it exactly smack the same. So how how does that how do you change when you are approaching something you've done before and same thing for for Justin when you come back to a work you've created? Um, well, for me, I think the the most joy I find is working with um, the dancers on on an existing work. Like um, I don't, I'm not as excited about like revisiting something that's been made already. I I'm much more interested in the process of making something new um but there is something in engaging with these artists in something that has existed and that we sort of know more or less what it is i mean it can change and we can tweak it and we do that certainly um but i think it's like you know dance and making dance such a social uh experience like it's your um working in the room with other humans to create energy and shape and movement and um and there's no other way to really do it i mean you can prepare for that time but um but it's really about that exchange and so i think 
uh, we have mostly a new cast actually doing this, but it's a lot of dancers who I've worked with um, either at New York City Ballet or elsewhere. And it's, um, it's, it's really refreshing, I think, to, um, to have them uh, exploring this work for the first time and then for me to respond to that. So, yeah, that's what I would say. How about you, Johnny? When you come back to something you played before, how, how does it shift? Um, well, it, you know, it's never really, it's never really the same. I mean, it's not again like it's just not a fixed thing that exists exists in the in the vacuum. Um, like I've played the uh, the White Swan uh, piece here many times with mm-hmm. with different mm-hmm. performers. Um, and I've done it with Devon and Corey a few times, and it still feels different from you know from rehearsal to rehearsal. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, actually, with with the piece you're talking about, we you know it was 2018, and lots of things happened since then. So um, when when Damien sent the video of the piece, um, I think we uh, the the musicians were kind of in the in the darkness, so I couldn't really see who was playing. I'd see the dance. And it's like, oh wow, that you know, that court, they got a they got a decent quartet to play it, but I don't I don't recognize this music at all. Uh, and then um, the piece was over, and 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 the quartet came up to take a bow, and it was, like, and it was us, and I was shocked. <laughs> I had no idea that we were the ones playing it because uh-huh. it just did not sound familiar, you know. Uh, and um, but as soon as we got into rehearsal yesterday uh, at ten thirty at night rehearsal. Um, and we played the first few chords and Caroline started singing. It's like, oh yeah, I remember this piece. This is a great piece. You know, like it was just, uh, it, it, it takes a second because like everybody, you know, there's so many things that, that, um, there's so much music that, that we've played since then. Right. Um, but, and it feels great to come back to, to something like that because it, it doesn't feel, it, it's definitely not overplayed. Like, you know, like right. we've done it once or twice. Yeah. Um, and it feels like a like a friend that you come back to and you revisit and and um, and things change also because because of all the experiences that happened between you know 2018 and now like we approach we've learned certain things we've forgotten certain things um, we got older and we you know we also depreciate <laughs> so um, it's funny I I I there's certain sections in that piece where I'm like. I didn't choreograph that or like who choreographed that? <laughs> yeah. Like it's a, but it looks familiar. I'm like, Oh, I like that. I like those choices. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. so, so it's like, and I can't figure out how physically they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's also part of the nature of this festival and how it's like, it's a, it's, it's a beautifully pressurized environment where we're trying to just make as much as we can in a short amount of time. And that's part of what makes the festival so great and that's part of what uh adds a kind of like buzz to what's what's happening here mm-hmm. um in Vail. So you know what I, what I thought was particularly interesting when you're talking about like you start playing and you remember it's like dancing it's mm-hmm. like you it's so much easier to do a step like I'm sure Justin you show everything when you choreograph I bet if you like try to put those things that you're seeing on now and you're like, did I do that? But if you did it in your own body, you'd be like, Oh yeah, of course I did it. Right. Like there is that crossover between the arts. Like it is a physical memory that stays in you. Yeah. I mean, those physical memories are, are kind of, um, 
they, they can be overwhelming because, um, like as a young kid, uh, learning a piece of music, um, you know, like, let's say you mentioned Bach, like if I learned, a um, you know, a, a one of the sonatas or partitas when I was 13 or 14 and you learn it a certain way, right? Like in terms of the, the bowing and the fingering, like it's, you learn it and it's so deeply ingrained that if you want to change it now, you have to, there's so much effort, mental effort that has to go into actually undoing that physical memory. That's just, it's just in there, you know? So, um, actually I, I like the piece that I, um, I think I'm open. The, the the piece that opens the show tonight is this um, uh, trio, right? For for the uh, wonderful dancers from from Ukraine, and uh, it's a piece of music that I last time I played it, I was 13 years old, mm. uh, and I loved it back then, and I still love it. But but when I came back to it now, and I'm trying to like, how did I? I have some physical memory of doing it, and I'm trying to. Like reverse, <laughs> right. you know, like reverse engineer it and learn it for the first time. It's really, uh, it, it, it's it's an effort that one wouldn't think of necessarily. Right. Well, you guys have a very busy day ahead of you, I'm sure. So I want to open up to audience questions before we have to let you go. Right here. This is for Justin. Uh, to what degree do you tailor your choreography to fit a certain dancer or a group of them that have particular capabilities? Like I'm thinking of certain things that Robin demonstrated a couple nights ago, not too many male dancers can do something like that. So, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, so, that's absolutely uh, in consideration when I'm making dances. Uh, I think a lot about casting and I think a lot about, I, I visualize the dancers that um, that I'm planning on working with in relation to the music as I'm uh, building out kind of like a broad structure for a piece. And then eventually, even when I go into the studio, part of my process is going into the studio in solitude and just responding physically to the music using my own body as an instrument. And that's really informative in terms of like how in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of, okay, this dancer is going to be performing at this moment, or this dancer is going to be doing this. Like how would, how would they move? And I think that's um, uh, part of why I really love um, working with certain dancers again and again, because there's deeper creative relationships that form in that Mm -hmm. way and start to understand not just who they are as dancers, but who they are as humans and how they think and, and also how they move. And I think like that makes for a richer work and, Part of why I love um, uh, having this residency at New York City Ballet, and uh, and I feel really lucky to get to continue to make work with um, with like a, a generation of dancers that continues. And and some of those dancers, you know, I grew up with. Um, I came to the School of American Ballet when I was fifteen, and so even like you know T- Tyler Peck is dancing Bloom tonight, and uh, I've known her since she was 14 and I was, you know, 15 at the school or like in the new piece, I'm dancing alongside Robbie Fairchild and we were roommates at SAB. And there's something about that, um, experience that just gives, um, 
a few millimeters of greater depth to the exchange. So when you're taking that into consideration, like the individual talent, do you ever think um, of pushing someone outside of the boundaries? Like, like, oh, this person's seen as a virtuoso. I want to make something for her as, you know, an adagio dancer. Does that ever come into play? Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, I think it's also about challenging those dancers, especially the ones that I get to work with again and again. I mean, I just, um, I've been talking with Sarah Mearns, for example, um, about uh, there's this solo that I mentioned earlier in the podcast uh, that was the the Barber Mm -hmm. uh, Adagio, and that was created for Anthony Huxley. And I want to explore that with Sarah. So that's like, you know, obviously... It's um, it's more of an adagio movement, but it's made for this male dancer, and um, and so I I just I can see us creating a version that's sort of customized to um, her way of moving, and also like that something that challenges her, and and I think it's like it's a substantial uh, task to sustain this. I mean this this massive piece of music that's like about you know, seven or eight minutes long of just one dancer on stage. So I think like that's Mm. an example of like uh, a process in which um, we'll challenge this artist to push further in certain ways. Right Uh, right here. Johnny, um, you've performed both on the stage and in the pit this past week. And do you have a preference or does it depend on the nature of the, the dance and the music choice? I mean, we just do, you know, in that regard, we just do what we're told. <laughs> um, I mean, the pit is fine. Uh, it's harder to be in touch with the dancers, right? So we can, I mean, there's a monitor, but it's a monitor is not the same uh, as being on stage. So I guess the preference is always to be in a space where we can experience it together. But, you know, there, there are reasons, there are specific reasons why we're in the pit. So, you guys are great. This is, I mean, I come to these things because you, you inform what I see on the stage. Um, and I want to ask a question as an audience member, which is, it's a, sort of a trivial question, but I think there's elements to it, which is, where's the best place to sit? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Is Are you asking specifically about this theater here? Okay. Um... I mean, it's a pretty well-designed theater, I have to say. The seats are good. I think everyone would tell you something different in terms of like where to watch. I used to, when I was at the school, I would, I would watch. They would give us tickets to go to the valley, but they would usually be in like the fourth ring, like the nosebleeds. And then I would like look down at the front row of the orchestra, and I would see an empty seat, and I would like run down and sit there. And then I was like, "Oh, this is cool! I can see the dancers sweat on stage." And so it's just like honestly, it's a different experience to see a piece from the front row compared to like the the back of the theater. And I think you gain something and you lose something in either case. Like what I just described there, like you get to see the dancers up close and like them really moving and kind of flexing and sweating and all that. And there's, there's something amazing about that. But then when you step back, you can see the composition of a piece uh, in its entirety and it's in its full clarity. So, um, so it just depends on what you prefer. 
And the, and the program. Like, it, like Justin's work can be so architectural. I would not... It's it's hard to give that, that up. Like, I want to see it from up on high. Like, my parents, the first time they saw Increases, my dad was like, oh, that's the best ballet I've ever seen. Like, Dabba, you didn't even get to see, like, everything he put into it. Like, those kaleidoscopic formations. So, yeah, you, you, you gain something and you lose something by every seat. What do you think, Johnny? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I agree. <laughs> from from the from the back of the stage, that's a good place to watch too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions in the back? I'm just curious if you could share any upcoming projects that is in the um, Well, I want Johnny to talk about his new album because it's <laughs> amazing. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, I actually um, thank you. Uh, this is an album that. Uh, has a direct um, uh, relationship to this festival. Um, I've, how many of you might have been here last year? Uh, okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so last year there were uh, three works that were commissioned by the festival for solo violin. Um, and um, they, uh, there was the duet was Lauren and Bach. And then there was... Um, Let's see, there was the piece was uh, Ballet X and Calvin, uh, mm -hmm. choreographed by Jamar Roberts. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and then there was a third piece, let's see, Christina. Is it the one with Michelle? Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. And then New to the Session, which I think is on the program tonight, uh, <clears throat> which which had a uh, you know an amazing kind of cast of... of uh, dances from all, uh, all over the place. And Johnny right? moves and, through and, it. And, uh, yeah. A little bit, yeah. But this is a project that... Um, kind of came out during the pandemic uh i <clears throat> commissioned over 20 works for uh for, for solo violin um and just asked uh composers to kind of reflect on on 2020 2021 uh 2020 mostly um and uh because there was a lot going on back then uh with covid and and uh, the killing of george floyd and the fires west coast and the election uh, so it's a it's a an album of these works. Um, it's about four hours of music. So it's your you know everything that you've been dreaming of. New <laughs> four hours of new music for violin. It's called This Is America, um, and it's out there in the world. You can stream it or get it on on CD if you have those still. But yeah, um, and then uh, <laughs> let's see. So I I guess the immediate thing on the horizon for me is I'm working on developing a, a a kind of full evening project that explores the music of Aaron Copeland. And um, part of that is because um, it's so strange. There's, there's almost no Copeland music in the repertoire at New York City Ballet. And I find that to be just like not right. So what can I do to change that? Okay, I'm a choreographer who makes work. I'm going to, I'm going to um, engage with some of this music and bring it into um, to our theater. And so um, it's the first time I'm making something that's going to to be a full evening at New York City Ballet. And it, um, it feels like the right thing for me to do uh, in terms of the ambition of that. And um, yeah, I, just, I don't know. I've just, I've gotten a lot of um, invitations, I guess, to, to, uh, remakes you know remake a swan lake or remake a romeo and juliet and that just doesn't sound interesting to me <laughs> so i i want yeah i'm just more 
curious about making um, something that feels new and kind of like more authentic to how I make work as a choreographer. And this feels like the right sort of thing. So we'll see how that goes. So is that is that the thing that is generically labeled as new peck? Yes. <laughs> I know. It's very opaque. There's not a lot of... I think they do say music... But music by Aaron Copeland, it right? Does. It does. <laughs> well, that's about it. <laughs> w- can you give us any more details, or it's just? Um, we, we I don't wait. know. I, you, to be honest, I'm like still sort of shuffling with like some versions of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say that, and this could change too. But I, I'm, um, I'm looking at structuring it so that it doesn't have any sort of like intermission break. Um, I want it to be an experience where we sit down and we take in, take it all in and then it's over. And, um, in the same way that you, when you go to the movies and you sit down and you watch a film, it's like, there's no intermission that like breaks the flow. And I feel mm-hmm. like the, the structure at New York city ballet with the two intermissions, sometimes, sometimes that's nice to like break up the experience of each ballet, especially if they're so different, but, Um, but sometimes I find like, I want more momentum to an evening. And so, and we've never done that at New York city ballet. And I think it's like, it's worth trying and seeing like what that experience is like for the audiences. It's so good to, to get, get, get away with intermission. I mean, because also like as a, as a performer, you know, it takes a while to, um, to get into the space and the feel of any like when you're on stage, you know, you you might not feel it from the first second. It might take five or ten minutes to get into it. And then it might take a while for the audience that's coming in from whatever you had to do that day, right, to, to like quiet down and like really tune in. And we we can feel that connection when it actually happens. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, we feel like we are we are one, you know. And then intermission comes when you go have a drink and we go and do whatever we do and then you come back for the second half and you have to recreate that feeling from the beginning right. and it's it's like a it's a big lift but but that continuity like once you're in that moment where you feel like you're part of experiencing the same thing you just want to stay there until the end so yeah. Ho- hopefully. hopefully or you really want that <laughs> or you really want to get come. out yeah. yeah well that's yeah. <laughs> I, actually i think unfortunately we have to to stop now but really quick before we go when can we see your work when are, what are you performing you said you're on tonight you're mm-hmm. probably on every night uh from now on yes yes okay. uh, so Friday. every night come see johnny and you get to i mean uh, yeah but brooklyn writer is doing a couple of you know we're doing bloom we're also mm-hmm. doing uh two new uh two new works one was claudia Schreier and one was jody melnick and uh both from new uh commissioning projects of brooklyn Rider. so it should be really cool music that we haven't rehearsed as dancers yet but it'll happen oh, wow. very soon <laughs> and then uh my new piece for the uh, the festival here premieres um, on August 8th and it goes on the 9th again. And then this new uh, project around Aaron Copeland's music premieres in January of 2023. Great. Well, thank you both for joining us and thank you to everyone thank who came you. out today. Thanks. Thanks. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.